0: You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We are on the verge of a very critical situation with our health care system. We've been checking in with all the mayors this week. Each island is struggling with how best to reduce the number of COVID cases and hospitalizations by encouraging more vaccinations and testing. Hawaii County has an uneven vaccine rate with the east side up and the west side down. The latest count reports 87 new COVID cases. We talked to Mayor Mitch Roth this morning. What's the snapshot? I know uh, the headlines in today's uh, Tribune talk about possibly, you know, going back to some restrictions with the the beach parks. You know, w- what's your sense right now as to what might happen there on the Big Island?
1: What we're looking at and what we've been looking at throughout this entire crisis is what's been happening at our hospitals. And up until the last couple of weeks, our hospitals were doing pretty well but we've started to see that the numbers have been going up in the hospitals and you know I've actually went and visited the Hilo Hospital and Kona Hospital and after this I'm going over to Waimea to, to visit the Waimea Hospital to see how they're doing over there. What we're seeing there is pretty alarming their numbers are going up people have been waiting in the emergency room to, to get into the ICUs and so that has us very concerned and saying hey we need to do something And we need to do it pretty quickly.
0: Hilo Medical Center told us that they had, what, 21 patients in the COVID ward on Monday, which I think was their record?
1: There's a couple of places where they put people in the Hilo Medical Center. One, they have the ICU. And when we were looking at the ICU, the ICU has 11 beds, a place where I'm actually kind of familiar with because I spent uh, about nine days there uh, earlier this year. Six of those beds had COVID patients. And then they have a COVID ward that's outside of the ICU, it's for people that aren't as serious, they have 18 beds and they had 21 people set to be over there. That's really concerning. And what a lot of people don't realize is it's more than just COVID. When you have people waiting in the emergency rooms, that slows down service. And when people have heart attacks, like the heart attack that that I have, or if they have a stroke, or if they're in a car crash, there's something called the golden hour that first hour when medical services are crucial for life if, you know there's statistics that show if, if you can get the services within that first hour the likelihood of survival is so much greater and if our er's are overwhelmed and they can't handle the cases then things get get really dicey and so when we saw what was going at our er's we said we need to pull back and we're Right there at the edge, we're not where they've been on national television in places like New York and, and, and other places where you have ambulances waiting for 20 minutes at a time outside just to get into the ER. But with the numbers going the way they are, it's very easy that we could be at that state fairly quickly.
0: Yeah, we do not want to go there.
1: We, that- we do not want to go there. You know, I was talking to uh, one of the ER physicians What he said to me was, where we're at now, if we were to have a major crisis, for example, if the hurricane was to injure a bunch of people, or if you had a a massive crash on the freeway in Honolulu or or something like that, where there's a lot of cars and a lot of injuries that happen, not just the Hilo and Kona and, and Waimea hospitals, it would take down the entire system. And so there is concern and you see the people who are working a lot of overtime in the hospitals they're tired there's a lot of concern luckily yesterday and the day before we started receiving some workers through FEMA nurses and respiratory therapists to, to help lighten that load but you got to remember on Hawaii Island prior to COVID we had a 50% shortage of healthcare workers doctors and, and other key service providers. That was before COVID. After COVID, those numbers haven't gotten any better. They've actually gotten a lot worse. And so we have to really be mindful on the big island about what happens with our, our health industry, our, our, our doctors, our nurses, uh, the people that are working at the hospital. We, we need to do everything we can to protect them so they can protect us. Our doctors, our healthcare workers, they're doing everything they can. Matter of fact, one of the doctors told me it's like a three-legged stool. What happens at the hospital? The hospitals are doing what, what they can. You know, then you have what's going on in the community. And that's kind of where we're looking: people getting vaccinated, people doing the right things, socially distancing, wearing their masks, not putting themselves in dangerous situations. That leg is, is not really holding up so well. And then the third leg is the rules that we have in place. And and we've had a lot of rules. Nobody wants to close down anything. We expect that people do their best they can to keep themselves safe, healthy, so they're not overwhelming our medical system.
0: I think the one thing that is of great concern is also the medevac situation, because, you know, there are patients on the neighbor islands that need to come to Honolulu, and they're no beds in the ICU. I mean, what then?
1: Yep. I was in a conversation with Queens and and I know that they've had people waiting in the ER to to get rooms in the ICU. We've had that happen on on our Island. So again, speaking from personal experience, when I had my heart attack earlier this year, I was on the Kona side. They brought me to Waimea hospital, the the Queens hospital in in Waimea. Um, They had to bring me to Hilo to get, you know, the kinds of services that I needed. Every minute when you're having a heart attack is muscle. So time is muscle, and it is important that you get to the services you need quickly. And those services can't be provided quickly. Bad things happen.
0: So what do we do? You know, what are you looking as far as restrictions and rollbacks? Do you have a threshold? We're
1: having conversations on a statewide level because a, a lot of the decisions, even that we're making, we can make recommendations to the governor the governor still has to to make the approvals on those things. But we're looking at the places where people haven't been necessarily as responsible. And one of those is at our parks and beach parks. We've seen people just crowded together, packed in like sardines. And and so we're looking at possibly closing those. We're looking at the bigger events that we have now. While we've had restrictions, either 10 and 25 or 25 and 75, indoors and outdoors. We've also had the ability to approve larger gatherings. Those safety protocols that, you know, the hotels and and other businesses, the the wedding planners and and others, they've taken them very serious. And we have not seen a lot of spread from those events, taken the temperatures, they've spaced people out, they've required wearing masks. You know, it's difficult to penalize people who have been been acting responsibly, but I think we're, we're also looking at some of those bigger events and saying, you know, this isn't the time. We ask you guys to take a pause and maybe think about doing it a little bit differently.
0: You know, there are uh, a number of things that are tied to the economy, you know, whether it's the Iron Man uh, event or the filming that's going on over there on the Big Island, you know. You know, so you, you've got to try and weigh the safety issues, right? I mean,
1: absolutely. It's difficult. It really is because there's the physical health and safety, then there's the mental health and safety, and then there's more, even the financial health and safety. I mean, when people are put into situations where they can't work and they can't pay their rent, they can't pay for food, that's a whole nother thing that we have to be taking in consideration. We look at what's happening at the hospital. We look at what's happening to our businesses and to our economy because that does affect people's health and safety as well.
0: So uh, what is the county doing to kind of step up testing?
1: We've been doing some of our own testing. We've been paying for some of our own testing. We've been looking for testing sites. We're also trying to really move the Department of Health and Department of Education to up their testing. The county doesn't have a a health department like the state does. But that being said, we've been working with partners, one of our biggest partners, and I got to really send a a great shout out to businesses like KTA who have applied for grants and and they're helping with testing. We've been really trying to find more testing dollars and uh, opportunities. The most difficulty we're having is probably finding the people though, to do the work. It's like every place else, like your restaurants and your hotels and, and other businesses. It, it's difficult to staff people to do a lot of these testings as well. Shout out to, to the National Guard because they've, they've been really helpful in in all of our testings as well.
0: What about the vaccination sites? You know, uh, I was looking at some numbers where kilos rates are like 60 to 70%, but Kona's like 35 to 40. I mean, you know, what's the reason for the gap and what are we doing to address that?
1: The reason for the gap is really difficult to put a reason for that, just different segments of the community. But one of the things that we've been doing with pretty much all of our testing sites is that we've been adding vaccination clinics as well. We've recently... With the governor's orders, have started to see, and, and with the numbers coming up, we've started to see some more people coming on board and getting vaccinated. I think we'll get another bump pretty soon when the FDA approves the different vaccines. We need to all realize that this is all our responsibilities. There's a lot of mistrust and a lot of false information. I, I was talking to one of the doctors in the uh, ICU unit, and her message was this, these vaccines, They're doing exactly what they were made to do. They were made to prevent deaths and prevent serious medical consequences. And if you look in our hospitals, 95% or more of the people that are in our hospitals are unvaccinated. The other thing that the doctors told me was people who are vaccinated and end up with COVID and end up in the hospital, which, again, is very few, are generally there for maybe three to five days versus people who are unvaccinated are staying in our hospitals on average four weeks
0: right so there's less of a strain on our system you know we have
1: people who are unvaccinated entering the hospitals and they're spending long periods of time that makes everybody whether you're vaccinated unvaccinated have covid or not it puts you in a more dangerous position
0: that was hawaii island mayor mitch roth talking with us this morning about the kinds of restrictions that could be imposed if the rising COVID hospitalizations continue to strain our health care system. comes to politics what is the truth and can people agree on what the true facts are contributing editor Neil Milner is here to discuss the truth in our reoccurring segment The Long View good morning Neil hi Catherine so we've got truth seekers I think uh, liberal truth seekers and conservative truth seekers
2: (laughs) well so so believes a guy named uh, Thomas Koenig who wrote a piece uh, about that and he says it's in uh, an issue of the dispatch which is available online, Keenig says this: we have a crisis in uh, in truth seeking out there that there are so many people who or accepts false information and base their false information on their, ide- on their ideology rather than actually looking at the truth. And what the time is right for now is what he calls a faction, and I'll get back to why it's a faction and not a political party of truth seekers. That is, this is a time in which to establish a new identity called truth seekers and liberals who are serious about the truth would unite. With conservatives who are about uh, serious of the truth, why that's not a political party because he says liberals and conservatives differ very much on lots of moral issues and lots of uh, other kinds of political issues. It's too much to ask and unrealistic and probably unfair to ask them to unite uh, as a party, but they can come together as a as a faction as a group of influential people who. Can be comfortable with each other and be much more concerned with an with a objective evaluation of the evidence, seeking the truth. That is, this would be a way that you would get people, at least this group of people, to agree on the truth. It's a you know it's an it's an interesting idea. It also has tremendous limitations. It's interesting and important because because the world, our world, the United States world, is so screwed up when it comes to truth seeking. There is so much false information that people accept. If, uh, to me, the best example, the, 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 the most serious one is COVID. But the best example, the one that really is the scariest, has to do with accepting Trump's election. Um, that he really, you know, that he really lost the election, uh, that he really won the election, and and the the fight over that is just amazing. So that's the concern. Um, the problem is that what what Caning is trying to get people to do um, is really very unlikely because it's psychologically naive. People basically are not truth-seekers. People basically uh, seek information that reinforces their values. And we live in a society in which folks are so polarized, they don't even look at the same information anymore, and they don't even trust information that's different. So it's very, very hard to overcome that sort of thing, and it's very hard to have a protocol to do so.
0: Yeah, I mean, a a lot of this, I think, does boil down to trust, right? Do you trust the sources where you get this information? Uh, And like you said, if it's uh, ideology, this is what drives it.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, a lot of it is is ideology in a kind of a broad sense, right? If you trust only information, only sources of information that reinforce what you believe, and you think other sources of information are not only untrustworthy but false and maybe even evil uh, then in a sense you're not going to turn anywhere else and we've seen this kind of siloing of information for a long time Now, now kenning is right that that's a problem he's also right in the sense of saying there are people who are different there are people who are the kinds of people that Kaney wants that can transcend theology to to seek the truth. There are often people that uh, you see in this project called the Good Judgment Project, where they let the they let the facts determine. But it's essentially not the way that we normally think about politics. There's been some other writing about this too Can you develop a protocol that people can use to determine truth or falsity, accuracy or false information. And one of the more influential books, Thomas Roush, wrote that you do it by through science. Science has a protocol that assesses information. You know, I wish we could live in that world right now, but part of the problem is really getting people to accept those sorts of things. If you look at at that COVID, for example, there's always going to be uh, conspiracy theories when it comes to health stuff. There's always going to be people who believe, frankly, very wacky stuff. What you now have is a combination of politics, um, social media, and um, other kinds of ways that reinforces different kinds of beliefs. And it's not just about Trump versus non Trump voters. Uh, A lot of the the COVID, um, a lot of the COVID beliefs, the false beliefs about COVID and the vaccine come from people who have kind of their own fears and their own ideas and can find stuff on social media that reinforces it. So I guess what I'm saying is that that it's very important to try to move back to some kind of way of sharing information. Um, and, and mutually assessing information the problem is that it's not just about the process of information it's not just about bringing uh, truth seekers together it's essentially having a society in which you're not rewarded as much for thinking one way all the time and not trusting any other kind of information
0: so then would I be then naive then if, if I have this hope that You'd have a group of people that could somehow influence, gonna be influencers, uh, and 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 get us get the two sides to compromise.
2: Well, Catherine, I'd never call you naive about anything, (laughs) Uh, but I think that it's really not about compromise. It's about mutual. Discussions and mutual arguments. Sometimes it's not about compromise. I don't, frankly, it's not about being naive in the sense that it, it's something that we have to figure out uh, how to do. And you and I were discussing before. If you want to see situations that are very different now from what we normally do, the uh, the ex um, cardinal of, of New York City, the Catholic cardinal who now lives in the Vatican, and and is a very Uh, popular and very conservative anti uh, this pulp person has COVID he's pretty seriously sick with COVID he was a very serious vaccine skeptic he was a vaccine skeptic not even based on health stuff he was talking about um, things like uh, that government wants to put a microchip in you well here's a person who you normally wouldn't think about as being a fringe you normally don't think about him as just a Trump voter, if he even is a Trump voter. But something, But you, you, you're a highly visible person who has a lot of followers who's talking along those lines. When you get to a society in which you have those lots of things, what Kenning wants to do becomes even more important and even harder to do.
0: Okay, and he got COVID, too, didn't he? He
2: got COVID. Yeah, he's very sick. He's on a ventilator. So there are ways to try to persuade others. There are ways to bring people together. We know some of these ways. They tend to work in small groups. You can probably get a group of people together, liberals and conservatives who are truth seekers. You can probably have a process that helps bring them together. Whether you can move from that into taking people who are not really truth seekers, but uh, but uh, have these other kinds of issues and try to convince them to listen to others and to be more open about the facts, that's a real challenge.
0: All right. Well, Neil Milner, stay safe.
2: You too, Catherine. Take right. care.
0: Okay. Bye. That was a political analyst and social scientist, Neil Milner. He's our contributing editor of our weekly segment, The Long View. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's time for trivia tests, your backyard quiz.
3: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao,
0: Okawa, Oa, O ulana, O Lana, Oh Hawaii! For today's backyard quiz, we remember Pearl City native Brooke Antoinette Mahelani Lee, who made her mark on pageant history over two decades, uh, winning a trifecta of titles in the span of a few months. She was crowned Miss Hawaii, then Miss USA, and ultimately. Miss Universe in 1997. One of the most memorable moments in her Miss Universe quest was when a host, George Hamilton, asked this question to the top three contestants.
4: If there were no rules in your life for one day and you could be outrageous, what would you do?
0: Well, Brooke Lee gave one of the most honest and relatable answers that is still remembered to this day. It's probably what propelled her to win, beating out Miss Venezuela and Miss Trinidad and Tobago to become Miss Universe 1997. So, for today's quiz, do you remember what she said? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, NairitHawaii.com.
0: Rail and taxes—that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats Kevin Dayton on the line today. Good morning.
5: Good morning. How are you?
0: Good. So you uh, took a stab at uh, covering some uh, committee meetings last week. What'd you find? <laughs>
5: well, the issue that everybody's grappling with over at the in connection with the help the rail project is, if you've been watching, the city's struggles with that project. You are probably aware that the project is three point six billion dollars over budget. And the huge question that's sort of dangling in the air right now is, what is the city going to do? Where is the city going to go to get the funding to to close that deficit so the project can finally be completed? And that um, just for the back background, the full 20-mile rail line may not open for another decade in 2031, no matter what else happens. But they do need to find the money to complete the project or come up with some alternative, uh, such as stopping short. So the... Um, I guess the issue that's on the table right now is in, in this third budget crisis for rail, um, what might be a potential way of raising cash? And the alternative that they seem to be talking about is the new um, hotel room tax that the legislature just uh, enabled the city to impose. It could be as, luck, as much as 3%, 3% tax, um, and then that might set up a revenue stream that would help to fund the rail project.
0: But I just wonder, is that going to be enough? Because the counties want to use it for their own, you know, issues, right?
5: Absolutely. So during this session, uh, you know, the the bill that set up this 3% tax was a very complicated measure. that, among other things, it took away $45 million from the city in hotel room tax revenues that they used to get, that they've been getting for years, and instead authorized the city to impose its own 3% tax. So whatever that tax raises, the city is going to want some share of that money to try to make good on the money that they lost when the legislature took away forty-five million. So that makes it considerably more complicated when you talk about uh, turning to that money as a as a source for rail, because it, there's a good chance that the city is not going to be able to give the entire three percent to the rail project, even if they decide to impose the full three percent tax.
0: So while Hart is thinking about this, what is the council? i have to say
5: well the council is is they, i don't think they have a formal proposal um before them just yet um was, one council member that we talked to budget chairman calvin say um was adamantly opposed to using the whole three percent for the rail project his point he's got many years of budget experience with the legislature and now of course with the council his point was if you take the whole three percent and put it into rail pump more money into rail what is the city going to do if the city has some other kind of a budget crisis and needs that money later? Um, and his point is that, that it's just unwise to take all of that money and put it into rail. He's also, like many people, he was also he's very discouraged at the difficulties that the rail project has been having. It keeps coming back. Remember, there were this is this would be the third budget crisis for rail now, um, and and each one is is billions of dollars. So his concern is. Um, as he put it, they don't—they're unable to manage their money. Why would we give them more money if they can't manage the money that they have?
0: And you know, there was uh, the feeling from Mayor Caldwell that if the lawmakers just gave them the uh, extended the excise tax hike, uh, that that you know was a dedicated revenue stream and we wouldn't be you know doing these gyrations but um, I know you you did talk to uh, Sylvia Luke and she was pretty frosty at the thought of coming back (laughs) for a third time
5: she was so by way of background the the main source of funding for rail right now is that excise surcharge on Oahu and then also uh, some some additional money from the hotel room tax already in place Um, that's most of the money that finances rail today Um, and those taxes are scheduled to expire in 2030. From the city's standpoint, it would be probably ideal if the legislature would just extend those taxes for another, either indefinitely or for at least a a set period of time, which would raise more money, and then that revenue stream could be used to float more bonds, and then your budget crisis is is solved, at least for the moment. Um, The legislature, having done something like that, akin to that, Twice already uh, Sylvia Luke was suggesting and she's she's of course the House Finance chair very influential lawmaker she was warning that the legislature is not going to be interested in doing that again um, she said that's especially true now that the city has a place it can go to raise its own money which would be this hotel room tax this, this additional 3% hotel room tax if you've got that ability why don't you just do that yourselves instead of asking us to extend these other taxes because the legislature believes that at some point and they're pretty open about this. They may, may need that those those tax sources for themselves, or whether whether it be for public education or for some other uh, need at the state level. And they were very reluctant to just assign that permanently to the city.
0: So basically, if uh, Hart decides to go this route, they've got to get buy-in from the council, and then they've got to work it into their uh, uh, f- uh, financial recovery plan for the, uh, that they're going to present to the <clears throat> FDA, right?
5: Correct. Yeah, the the rule of thumb is that if you've got a revenue stream of maybe $50 million a year for maybe 25 or 30 years, that you ought to be able to borrow maybe a billion dollars against that. But even so, um 50 million is, you know, is getting kind of close to what the what the tax would probably raise in the first couple of years. So that's assuming they would be taking almost all of the money and yeah. it wouldn't even cover the full 3.6 billion.
0: We're in a fix, aren't we? <laughs> It would seem so. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org to find more.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island providing maxillofacial, facial plastic, and reconstructive surgery, specializing in facial aesthetic surgery, online at a-new-face.com.
6: On the next Fresh Air, writer
4: Al Press talks about people working in jobs most of us
6: would never want to do because they're difficult and punishing and in some way morally compromised. He interviewed prison mental health workers and correctional officers, oil rig workers, slaughterhouse employees, and military drone operators. His new book
4: is Dirty Work. Join us.
2: Beginning this afternoon at 3, following
6: On
7: Point.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at HonoluluMuseum.org.
0: So close and yet so far, the opening of the Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope was to happen more than a year ago. Thomas Rimmel, the project director for the almost $350 million project, is counting down the days as he hopes a telescope can open its window to the sun in three months' time. The travel restrictions set back construction on the critical systems of the telescope. That also meant the scientists vying for time on the telescope have had to take a back seat to the pandemic. Everyone is hoping the schedule won't be impacted by this latest COVID surge and any additional restrictions. Here's Thomas Rimmel.
3: The testing and then the vaccinations have helped in terms of bringing people from Boulder and other places back to Maui and to continue the work. In some cases, there was actually a delay of one year. One instrument group here in Boulder wasn't able to travel for one year to Maui. And they just recently finished up their work now, and that instrument is now finished.
0: That one is down, but how many more to go?
3: We have two more to go at this point, and they're in the final stages of integration and testing. So they're making really good progress too now.
0: So November is your new target date?
3: Yes, November 15 is what we're shooting for. We just had a big review, the final construction review, that was conducted by the National Science Foundation, and we got pretty good marks on that review so there's high confidence that we will finish by November 15
0: and there were a number of proposals you had a big call out for research and you were just i think a, a floored by the response that you got for those projects but what does that delay mean you know for those scientists
3: yeah they they're all eagerly waiting to get their observations done and their data And of course, with the one-year delay because of COVID, that got delayed too. So, as I said, they're getting really anxious to get their observations and data done. And that starts soon after November 15, where we will start implementing these proposals or the ones that got selected. We have many more proposals than we can hope to actually implement and do the observations for, but in a sense, that's good. So that means that this telescope is highly sought after in terms of people who want to use it.
0: And so what are the first ones out of the chute, can you say?
3: Well, that depends a bit on how the sun works at that time, whether we have sunspots available, which is likely. I mean, if the solar cycle is picking up, then we would probably at first observe sunspots and measure magnetic fields in sunspots. And then also look at the magnetic field at, at, in the higher atmosphere on the sun, the chromosphere and the corona in particular. So those are the high-priority uh, observations that we would perform. There's also observations of the quiet sun, with the tiny magnetic fields on the surface of the sun that we would start observing. So we, we have a full plate of observations that we can implement, and it depends which one we... Pick on any particular day depends on the conditions, you know, atmospheric conditions. How good it's what we call the seeing, the clarity of the sky, and then what objects are available on that day. Is there a sunspot that we can look at? And then we make decisions on what proposals we pick for that particular day to implement.
0: So, how many projects do you think you'll be able to fire off for the first year?
3: Hard to say. I mean, we do this in three phases. We have three proposal cycles. The first one we have already gotten proposals for, and we received about 100 proposals for an observing window of, let's call it two and a half months. Wow. That would be available for, for observations. So we might be able to get a fourth, a quarter, or even a fifth of those proposals implemented in those two-and-a-half months. So we highly oversubscribed, and, and people will have to submit proposals again for the next cycle. That's just how it works.
0: I imagine, though, you know, they're working on other things as well, so maybe the timing is a bit tricky.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're working on other proposals as well or other things as well, but, I mean, the data from this telescope is going to be so unique because of the resolution and precision with which we can measure the magnetic fields, that proposal pressure on this telescope is going to remain high for years to come.
0: And how does this work? You know, you're trying to fit as many projects as you can in that narrow window. Will the rest of the projects, if you can't fit them in, they reapply for the second call?
3: Correct. Yeah, they will have to reapply for the second call, and maybe for the third call, they can make modifications to the proposal to improve their chances to get the time. And yes, that's that's how we operate the telescope.
0: Lots of opportunity is once you folks get this off the ground.
3: Yeah, indeed.
0: And is there anything that, gosh, I don't know, that we had happen up in the skies that you wish you could have had that telescope up and operating? a missed window of opportunity?
3: Well, yeah, there are a few. For example, we have satellites, Solar Orbital, Parker Solar Probe up there now, you know, flying to the sun, getting closer. And we would like to have joint observations. So where we combine all the data, the data from the satellites and the data from the inner solar telescope, there's still opportunity for that in the next few years, but we're already missing some of that opportunity because of the delay that we incurred. Yeah. And, of course, the sun is getting more and more active now. We already had coronal mass ejections happen, and it would have been nice to be able to observe sunspot regions that, you know where those mass ejections originated. But we'll get there. There's plenty of opportunity ahead of us to make these observations.
0: That was Thomas Rimmel, who we caught up with in Boulder. He's a team leader for the Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope. It will be the largest of its kind in the world. Rimmel was expected to head back to Maui from Colorado as early as this week. <laughs> Management of Mauna Kea, that's been the rub on the mountain. While the pandemic has quieted the controversy, the tension has not gone away. We look now at what lies ahead and where the friction may arise again. HPR reporter Kuvehi Hirishi joins us this morning. Hi, Kuvehi.
8: Hey, aloha, Catherine. Yes, uh, the latest on on Mauna Kea right now, we have two telescopes in the process of being decommissioned, uh, CSO and Hoku Kea. So that's kind of happening. But in terms of the um, current existing observatories up there, a lot of remote work, like everyone else, every other organization under the pandemic, many of the astronomers up there and scientists and engineers working remotely and uh, limiting Uh, the amount of stuff that goes up to the mountain. But um, what is exciting uh, from what we hear is something called the Astral 2020. And it's this survey that is done within the U.S. astronomy community every 10 years um, where the community goes ahead and ranks uh, development projects, uh, astronomy development projects in the U.S., and uh, for folks like Doug Simons, veteran um, astronomer there in Mauna Kea, director of the Canada-France Telescope, uh, and a TMT supporter, he says uh, this is really going to uh, lay the foundation for the next 10 years of astronomy uh, here in Hawaii and hoping that TMT could be at the top of that
6: list. Uh, here's Simons. So it's, it's a big deal, and um, it's a process by which... The astronomy community um, ranks uh, development activity and, and various projects, um, and it it's has a history in, in, in the sense that the number one ranking in, in these decadal surveys almost always receives funding. So everybody's looking at that very carefully and seeing if TMT um, and GMT, which is a southern large uh, observatory, would receive a number one ranking after twenty twenty and Rumor mills are floating around as to when the announcement will be. The latest I heard was hopefully in September. There will be a um, an announcement by the National Academies. And I think that will be absolutely essential for TMT uh, in terms of securing funding to have that number one ranking.
8: So that is going on while TMT is also focused on uh, renewing its efforts to connect with the Hawaii community. So they've moved, uh, relocated their project manager to Hawaii Island and in the process of meeting with community members and stakeholders to really listen and understand how they can uh, do better. And this is really all happening while the working group that was established by the Hawaii State Legislature earlier this year is also trying to come up with recommendations on management of the mountain. And in that uh, group of about 15 Uh, stakeholders. It does include members of the Native Hawaiian community. It includes members from the astronomy community as well as lawmakers to come up with those recommendations on the sort of paving the path forward. Uh, But nothing really has changed in terms of TMT's focus. They are still uh, dedicated to Mauna Kea as the uh, preferred site for the telescope. And they are hoping that the Astro 2020 designation will uh, help uh, with that respect and giving them um, that extra boost, uh, but we also know that uh, the first group of uh, those calling themselves Kiai or protectors of Mauna Kea recently were found not guilty, and so uh, the group of about four, Maxine Kaha'ulelio, Skip Iwane, Puna Robinson, and Aloholani Brown were all arrested in 2019 for obstructing the Mauna Kea a- access road uh, during a protest in, in 2019, and so. They were the first group uh, of about 38 protesters, mostly Kupuna, who uh, recently got that uh, determination by uh, within the court system. They're all working through their own case, separate cases, uh, but the not guilty verdict uh, for uh, that group is really providing some momentum um, for those who do oppose TNT.
0: Right. And then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how this uh, progresses. We do have a new mayor uh, mm-hmm. at the helm. And, uh, you know, I know there, there are folks that really want to find a way forward, uh, to be able to, uh, uh, you know, appease the, the people there who want to protect the, the area from other development, uh, and, and also, uh, make the other side happy. The folks that, that want to see those telescopes continue to be built. But, you know, I guess folks want that mountain to be, mountain to be respected,
8: Right. And I think uh, that is a lot of the focus of the working group is trying to gather all these voices and make uh, the recommendation that could uh, be a win-win win for all sides of this uh, equation. Another uh, sort of the, the bigger picture development that's happening, though, and we've all heard about the master lease renewal process, right? So the master lease. Uh, for the uh, area in which all the existing uh, astronomers and observatories are up there on Mauna Kea is set to expire in uh, 2033. And so under the conditions of that master lease, uh, as it's written now, all telescopes are legally required to decommission by the end of that year. And that's obviously a situation that the existing observatories, including uh, Simon's, uh, is looking for uh, to avoid whether through this master lease renewal process or perhaps some other land authorization um that maybe the working group comes up with in their list of recommendations but that 2033 deadline expiration for the master lease is really uh top of mind right now
0: okay so we watch and wait but thank you kuvehi That was HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi talking about what's next with the 30-meter telescope plan for Mauna Kea.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, an energy company with their employees supporting local nonprofits such as Navian Hawaii. Learn more at parhawaii.com.
0: This is Katherine Cruz, host of HPR's The Conversation. Whether you live in our state or far from our shores, you'll know what's happening in Hawaii with the Daily Hour exploring news, science, history, or culture in the arts. Ensure that you'll never miss a show by subscribing to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. You'll get the latest discussions right on your phone or mobile device. For details, just head to our website. Have you ever seen an alai keo, keo It's our endemic coot. It can be found in wetlands throughout the Hawaiian Islands. But despite its widespread territory, its small population numbers can make this bird hard to find. But we've got its call for you today, courtesy of the Macaulay Library at uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's the University of Hawaii's Patrick Hart with today's manu Minute.
7: Alay Keokeo, or Hawaiian coots, are water birds that are found on all the main Hawaiian islands except Kaho'olave, and are endemic to Hawaii, meaning that they're found nowhere else in the world. They're also considered to be endangered, with less than two thousand individuals left. About the size of a small duck, both male and female Ale Keokeo are mostly black with white bills and a prominent bright white shield above their bill. Unlike ducks, their toes are lobed instead of webbed, which allows them to better walk on land. Hawaiian coots are mainly found in coastal wetland areas, kalo fields, and aquaculture ponds where they eat a variety of aquatic plants, shellfish, and fish. In Hawaiian mythology, Alai Keokeo are known for their chattiness and harsh warning cries. Alai Keokeo have a really interesting nesting behavior where they often construct floating nests out of aquatic vegetation. This allows them to avoid many introduced mammalian predators such as dogs, cats, rats, and mongoose. A recent paper from a UH Manoa graduate student showed that predicted sea level rise from global warming will cause a significant reduction in their nesting and foraging habitat. However, this could be offset and even reversed if traditional indigenous farming techniques, such as the maintenance of lo'i for kalo, are expanded into former agricultural wetlands. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology.
4: Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private, and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com.
0: Earlier in the show, we dug into our video archives to look at Kamehameh School's graduate, Brooklyn's Lee's winning performance in the 1997 Miss Universe pageant. She, along with 73 other delegates, descended on South Florida in May of that year to impress the judges. Lee scored well in early preliminary rounds, and she continued strong throughout the competition's swimsuit, evening, and interview sections. In the final round, she, along with Miss Venezuela and Miss Trinidad and Tobago, were asked this last question. If there were no rules in your life for one day and you could be outrageous, what would you do? The close-up shot of Lee's face is priceless. Her eyes sparkle when George Hamilton says the word outrageous, and here is her answer. I would eat everything in the world. You do not understand. I would eat everything
7: twice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Miss USA. <laughs>
0: and that answer propelled Lee to the top, and her win made her the seventh Miss USA to win Miss Universe and the first from Hawaii. Congrats to David Mona from Kauai. You are the winner. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. That's it for this Wednesday. Tomorrow, we wind up our show with Maui Mayor Mike Victorino. Got a story about vaccines you want to share? Leave your feedback on our TalkBack line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And remember, find our archived shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.